This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can analyze the mental health and personality factors that may be at work in the Arthur Shawcross case. He's also known as the Genesee River Killer. Arthur Shawcross was a serial killer who was active in the state of New York in 1972 and then again in 1988 and 1989. Just a reminder, I'm not diagnosing anybody in this video, only speculating about what could be happening in a situation like this. So first I'll look at Arthur's background, then the timeline of the crimes, move to the trial, and then the mental health and personality factors. So starting with the background, we see that Arthur was born in Kittery, Maine on June 6, 1945. He was one month premature. It was later theorized that he had XYY syndrome, so he had an extra Y chromosome. Most people with this condition have normal intelligence, but their intelligence is often lower than that of their siblings. Arthur would be the oldest of four siblings. Arthur's mother moved to Watertown, New York, as his father finished his time with the military. At age five, Arthur was still using baby talk, and he had frequent bedwetting and nightmares. At age six, he started running away from home. In school, the teachers characterized him as lazy. He was aggressive and would bully other children. He started talking to imaginary friends at age seven, and by age eight, he was isolated in school and was referred to as odd. In third grade, at age nine, his grades started to suffer. He had earned A's and B's up till that point. Now we see around this time he also sustained a head injury. He was hit in the head with a stone. He required hospitalization and stitches. He experienced numbness as a result of this for years and had a permanent knot on his head. Not long after this he sustained another head injury and he was hospitalized but he was released shortly thereafter because they determined that he was okay. His mother discovered that Arthur's father had another wife and son in Australia, right? That news could certainly cause tension in a marriage. Arthur had to repeat fourth grade. During this time, he was bullied and he was still bullying younger children. His levels of aggression increased and he began stealing. An intelligence test given to him at this time revealed an IQ of 86. So one standard deviation would be 15 points. So he's almost one standard deviation below the mean. A few years after his arrest, he was tested again at age 48, and he had a score of 95. At age 13, his family moved to Brownsville, New York. When Arthur was 15, he failed the eighth grade. At this point, we see all three elements of the McDonald triad at one time. So this is the idea that there are certain characteristics that point to psychopathy. We see that he was still wetting the bed, he started torturing small animals, and he started setting fires. Those three elements are the McDonald triad. In addition, his level of violence increased even more, and he continued to use baby talk. At age 16, he sustained another head injury. He was knocked unconscious for several hours. He spent four days in the hospital. His criminality escalated to burglary. He would drop out of high school at 17, and at age 18, he was arrested for breaking into a Sears store. He was sentenced to 18 months of probation. At this point, he sustained yet another head injury after being hit with a sledgehammer, he has a really dangerous life here. Again, he was knocked unconscious for several hours. 
Now, he was married in 1964. His wife divorced him in 1965 because he was violent. He relinquished paternal rights to a son that was a year and a half old. Arthur was arrested again at age 20. He physically attacked a 13-year-old for hitting his car with a snowball. He received six months probation for this crime. Mental health professionals who evaluated him said that he had emotionally unstable personality. He was drafted into the Army in 1966. At first, he didn't do well in that environment, but eventually he seemed to calm down a bit. He sustained another head injury there by falling off of a 40-foot ladder. In September 1967, he married his second wife. The next month, he would go to Vietnam and serve as a supply parts specialist. He claimed to have been a one-man patrol in Vietnam and that he killed 39 combatants and also murdered women. It turns out that none of that was true. He completed one tour and was discharged from the Army in 1969. Not long after this, he physically attacked his second wife, and they divorced shortly after that. Around the same time, he set a fire at a paper mill and at a cheese company. In December 1969, he was convicted of arson and sentenced to five years in prison. He was paroled from prison less than two years later because he saved the life of a prison official during a riot. He moved to Watertown, New York after this. In April 1972, he married for the third time. May 7, 1972, he murdered and sexually assaulted a 10-year-old male, Jack Blake. About five months later, he did the same thing to an 8-year-old female, Karen Ann Hill. Police could not tie him to the Blake murder, but a police dog led the authorities right to his house from where Hill's body was found. He was also seen with Hill right before her death. He was arrested in October of 1972, but the police couldn't get a high-quality confession, so they were a little unsure about their case. The prosecutor let Arthur plead to manslaughter if he confessed to both crimes. He did that, and he received an indeterminate sentence with a maximum of 25 years in prison. While in prison, he divorced his third wife, he was physically violent toward other inmates, and he refused mental health treatment, at least initially. In prison, the mental health professionals characterized Arthur as a schizoid psychopath. After 14 years in prison, the parole board was not comfortable releasing him. Any mental health clinicians thought he was dangerous. Even still, he was paroled in April of 1987. Because of the types of crimes he had committed, his parole officer had difficulty finding him a place to live. There was a lot of outrage in the community. He ended up moving Arthur quite a few times because of this, and he ended up in Rochester, New York, with his new girlfriend, Rose Wally. By the end of 1987, Arthur, then 42, was already having an affair with a 56-year-old woman named Clara Neal. Due to the problems finding him a place to live, the authorities decided to seal his criminal record. Later on, we see this becomes a significant problem. Now, moving to March 15, 1988. Arthur murders a prostitute named Dorothy Blackburn. He dumps her body in the Genesee River. July 8, 1988, he murders a 28-year-old female, Anna Steffen. Over one year later, on July 29, 1989, he murders a former housekeeper, 59-year-old Dorothy Keller. Arthur and Rose get married in 1989. They invited a lot of people to the wedding reception, but only two people showed up. So here we see a real disconnect. Arthur didn't understand what other people thought of him. He didn't realize that because of his past crimes, that might discourage people from wanting to attend his wedding. Because of this lack of understanding, he was probably angry when people didn't show up. He didn't understand why they would 
not like him. Arthur would kill nine more times in 1989, once in September, twice in October, three times in November, and three times in December. So here we see a pattern of escalation. The first murder in November was a 22-year-old female named Maria Welch. She was found with dirt and leaves in her throat, just like what was seen in the Karen Ann Hill case, the eight-year-old that he killed in 1972. If his criminal records had not been sealed, the police could have identified him after this murder. So that would have probably closed this case a lot sooner and saved lives. His second-to-last murder victim was a 34-year-old female named June Cicero. He killed her on December 18. He left her body on top of the ice under a bridge. In January 1990, a police helicopter spotted Arthur parked on that bridge. He had returned to visit that body, as he did with several other victims. Arthur was arrested a few days later. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now moving to his trial. After his arrest, Arthur confessed. So the trial really became about his mental health. His defense asserted that Arthur did not know the difference between right and wrong. Amazingly, there were mental health professionals who believed Arthur. They thought that his combination of the XYY syndrome, a brain abnormality, his traumatic experiences when he was young, and his alleged combat experience in Vietnam made him not responsible for the murders. They went so far as to say that he had some sort of partial seizure disorder, which meant that when he was under stress, he would completely black out, commit these murders, and then he would return to normal. So conveniently, he wouldn't remember any of the crimes he had committed. He would simply come out of the seizure and see this dead body next to him, not knowing how it got there. Now, instead of calling the police at this point, Arthur hides the body and visits the body repeatedly, and then goes out again and puts himself in the same circumstance. And this happens 11 different times. And at no point during this time period did he think, maybe I shouldn't be going out anymore. Clearly, he fabricated this whole idea of the blackout. And it's genuinely frightening that the mental health professionals believe this story. They also attempted to hypnotize him, and it seems fairly clear that he manipulated them through that process as well, fabricating stories of mistreatment when he was young that could not be corroborated. The jury was not impressed with this defense, 
they found Arthur guilty of 10 counts of second-degree murder after deliberating for just a half hour. He was sentenced to 250 years in prison. A few months later, he went to face trial for a murder that happened in a different county, but he pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison for that murder. July 10, 1997. Arthur, now 52, married Clara Neal, 66. He had an affair with her at the end of 1987, as I mentioned before. When asked about the marriage, Clara said, It was nice and all. It took 10 years to make the grade, but I finally did it. I didn't know there was a way to have standards that are somehow less than having no standards at all. It's like some type of anti-standard. This type of mentality is consistent with somebody being offered a job at $20 an hour and saying, No, I'll pay you $20 an hour to work here. And if the working conditions are hazardous, I'll pay you 25 We also see that Arthur had a daughter they didn't know about. She established a relationship with him when he was in prison, and she made certain that her children had a relationship with him. Arthur Shawcross died of cardiac arrest on November 10, 2008. He was 63 years old. Now moving to the mental health and personality factors. Arthur's behavior seems to align pretty well with antisocial personality disorder. We see all seven symptom criteria are met. Criminality, pathological lying, impulsivity, aggression, a disregard for safety, irresponsibility, and a lack of remorse. He also had symptoms of conduct disorder before the age of 15, which is another requirement for that disorder. His behavior aligns closely with secondary psychopathy. In addition to what's already covered under antisocial personality disorder, he also had a parasitic lifestyle, a lack of long-term goals, and excitement-seeking. His behavior featured enough primary psychopathy characteristics to allow him to manipulate people, for example, when he managed to talk his way out of jail. Also, from primary psychopathy, he had pathological lying, a lack of empathy, and a failure to accept responsibility. The lying really stood out with Arthur. It seems as though he lied whenever he talked. It's likely he lied about many of the experiences he had when he was a child, he lied about his time in Vietnam, and he made up stories to justify why he felt he had to kill each of his victims. For example, he said one victim tried to steal his wallet, another wouldn't stop talking, one attacked him, and a few made fun of him. This making up stories part really points to vulnerable narcissism. He didn't want to be judged as a typical serial killer. He wanted to be judged as somebody who was justified in killing. He experienced a lot of shame, could not tolerate criticism, and liked being the center of attention. Now, we see in an interview he did, he wouldn't talk about the 1972 murders. He avoided that topic completely, probably because it deviated from this narrative he was trying to portray. I think the same thing happened when he discussed how he was spotted that day on the bridge by the helicopter. People were supposed to believe that he was just standing there with his pants down on that bridge. Randomly, he completely forgot that he killed somebody and put their body under that bridge. He just couldn't admit that he went back to visit that body. This, again, connected with typical serial killer behavior, and he didn't want people seeing him that way. This is really just more evidence that his manipulation skills are very basic. But because there are those who will believe anything, he was still able to deceive quite a few people. Now, earlier I mentioned that mental health professionals had used the word schizoid to describe Arthur. They said schizoid psychopath. And I think this is a little confusing. I'm not sure what they were seeing to label him schizoid. People who have schizoid personality are loners. They don't want sexual contact with other people. They don't maintain friends. They kind of stay to themselves. And usually 
they're fairly diligent in their work. They tend to choose occupations where they can stay isolated. But again, usually they do a good job. I don't really see Arthur's personality as aligning with schizoid personality pathology. I think antisocial explains his behavior much better. Maybe when he was in prison, again, because he didn't talk to those professionals too much, they just thought, okay, he's trying to remain isolated. He wants to say to himself, and they label him as schizoid. Very rarely do we see people with schizoid personality becoming serial killers. This isn't common at all. So this is interesting how they kind of put that in there, but I don't think it really ties to the personality that he had. Arthur pretty much checked every box that one would expect with the serial killer. He had psychopathy, he had a history of head injuries, sexual dysfunction, all three behaviors in the McDonald triad. He was aggressive when he was young, including being a bully, and he had poor relationships with women. It's really not surprising he went on to murder 13 people. It's a tragedy that law enforcement wasn't able to stop him sooner, and it was a tragedy that the mental health professionals could not keep him in prison for longer. So we see a lot of mistakes here that were made that allowed him to go on and commit these crimes. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. and I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.